0: 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Kyle Fitzgerald, here shining a light on the powers of monopoly and how they impinge on our very economic rights. It's been a huge week. Uh, In The Renegade Economist, uh, we're going to step back to the 16th Global Environmental Tax Conference, talking about uh, Indigenous rights being patented, and there's a new buzzword on the horizon, so uh, let's kick into it. The chair of the Global Conference on Environmental Taxation, the 16th conference, is Natalie Stoenoff, who's the professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Now, look, I just had to grab her because she's got a fascinating uh, LinkedIn profile and it talks about her research in the legal, ethical and commercial aspects of biotechnology and biodiversity. So let's start there, Natalie. Tell us about biotechnology and some of the cutting edge issues that listeners should be aware of.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Carl. There are a lot of issues that we need to think about when it comes to biotechnology. From one perspective, you have the ethical questions about the research itself, what it's producing, what, what happens in the atmosphere, any environmental effects. Then, of course, the effects on the human, human being, from, our, from transgenic plants that, that are being grown in the, in the fields to the various technologies that are, are used to treat human beings, new ph- pharmaceuticals, etc
0: let's just start off with the basics transgenic i mean i've heard of gmo uh, based plants but what's transgenic
1: transgenic is basically bringing together the genes from two different um species and into the one into the one uh, living organism um, so you might be for example utilizing growth hormone from a human being and and putting it into the genome of um, a pig to make it grow faster.
0: It's a, it's scary in a way what's happening, and so you're trying to keep on top of the the legal and ethical fronts there. And how far behind is the the legal framework?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Um, we had uh, at one stage, uh, um, shall we say, a moratorium on GMO plants and animal, uh, plants being uh, grown in Australia, but that has basically been. Uh, shall we say, moved along because we, we now have, for example, canola, which, which is a GMO product, standard one. Um, the difficulties that arise with that is when, for example, you have uh, a farm which is proposing to be an organic farm, and then you have not that far away a GMO field of canola impacting the the orga- organic farm.
0: As in poor old Steve Marsh in Western Australia. That's correct. Mm. A tragic case, that. And so the the law, uh, there was a moratorium, but now you're saying uh, progress has stormed ahead. I mean, what are government doing? Because it's across the board. It's not just in uh, biotech. It's it's in technology itself. Uh, God, it's in property speculation. It's wherever. And government's really struggling to keep up after years and years of cutbacks to the, the public service. Uh, are you seeing any sort of... Uh, uh, fight back, if you like, from public policy makers with uh, the public interest in mind?
1: Well, I mean, we did have a regulator that uh, was was designed to sort of control how these things are rolled out. And, you know, there needs to be approvals given, etc., for where, where things are being uh, made available and, and grown, etc. cetera. Um, but it's usually aimed at the more highly um, Shall we say dan- more dangerous end of of GMOs um, and the potential that it could have harmful effects? Um, whereas foodstuffs, I think we've been seeing in more recent times, have being quite readily acceptable as being <laughs> something which uh, we can certainly uh, uh, ingest and, and and is not perceived as being any, any any harmful effects taking place. But if we go to the to the other side of things, that that ha- I think has been probably not so much in in the. In the in the public spaces, as some of the more interesting issues that have been developing out of our own natural environment, and understanding our own natural environment, and finding out that in fact there are wonderful potential pharmaceuticals here in Australia that can be utilised in medical treatments, etc.
0: So as we move on uh, this incredible bio you've got, this is kind of radio on the run here. So I'm going to throw a question at you, uh, where you you've got. Uh, concern about patents and also you work as the chair of the Indigenous Knowledge Forum Committee. So uh, the patenting of uh, indigenous know-how, and I remember, uh, might've been earlier this year, there was a retiring scientist up in a Darwin type area who had, I think, some crazy spiders or, or something coming out of the ground that had some incredible healing properties. I mean, they're the things that a big farmer, our pharmaceutical industry is really on the lookout for to try and uh, patent and stop any other development so they can make lots of money in in that particular um, field. So there's a a private incentive there for them to be way in front of where the public agencies are and uh, how does that play out in your world, that sort of competition between interests?
1: A lot of the issues that have come out have been sort of, well, Internationally they've tried to be dealing with it under the, Bi- the Biodiversity Convention um, and then later on the Nagoya Protocol coming out of that. So there's a recognition that nations have their own genetic makeup, their own natural fauna and flora which could have benefit to the whole of society and the idea of the convention was to give sovereignty rights over those their indigenous plants and animals, so they can then utilise in these exact circumstances. So what we have in Australia right now is a commonwealth piece of legislation, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is under review at the moment, which actually gives companies, individuals, researchers an opportunity to access that genetic material under a permit system and divides them into two spheres, commercial and non-commercial. If they happen to be non-commercial, so they're just doing general research at a university, for example, then there generally will not be some sort of benefit-sharing agreement arrangement put in place, a commercialization sort of arrangement. But where the purpose of the investigation is to find out that wonderful chemical that is potentially going to be saving the world, then that is perceived as being a commercial arrangement. And the that particular legislation has regulations in place which allow for commercialisation agreements between the parties to benefit. Now part and parcel of that are those who happen to be the knowledge holders, the indigenous knowledge holders in Australia, that actually point these bioprospectors in the right direction and say, this plant we use traditionally for A, B and C or this animal is utilised for that particular purpose. And it's, it's usually only because of that interaction that the bioprospector knows where to go and then starts the whole research and development process, which results in that pharmaceutical, which eventually gets patented globally and then makes a fortune for the company that does so.
0: Well, there's a new term, listeners, bioprospectors. What potential is there in that production process for then patent thickets to be set up around uh, this beneficial uh, byproduct of nature, impeding other uh, research angles? And I suppose uh, in light of that line of questioning, you'd have to say, how is the TPP gonna come into play uh, with sovereign laws such as this Biodiversity Act, and where is the state of debate in that play?
1: Well, of course, the TPP is all secret, isn't it? (laughs) So we don't really know what's being discussed. But, you know, when you consider the different types of leaks that have taken place, the majority of nations, I would say, who are party to that, with the exception of the US, are going to be nations which are concerned about this whole question. Are they going to have their... Sovereign rights protected over their own uh, genetic makeup for their plants and animals, um, and how is that going to play out in the long run? So, that is an issue, um, and there's been, I, I believe, a request that there, this be put into the TPP. I don't know how far it's gone on that point. But um, something we need to think about, though, is that it, it's not all gloom and doom because we have got examples of Aboriginal communities around Australia that have actually engaged very productively with researchers in in various Australian universities, entered into joint venture agreements, in in the end produced a a patentable product, and are joint owners in that. So it's, it's, as I said, it's not all glim and doom. It's just a question of making sure that all communities have the ability to have the same bargaining power.
0: We're talking to Professor Natalie Stoyanov from uh, University of Technology, Sydney. She's a specialist in Indigenous patenting. And I um, had asked her a question about uh, what was happening with uh, uh, the the BRAC1 uh, gene patenting argument and where that was in the legal situation and as we know now over the last couple of weeks since this interview uh, that court case has fallen on the side of the people and myriad technologies is not allowed to patent the uh, the core gene related to breast cancer so that's a great victory for the people and natalie sort of answered it saying well it depends whether uh, the the gene was natural or not and so let's just take the conversation from that point what's natural and what not uh, also can relate to the pricing system and we've had an absolute zinger of a news story in the last few days with a uh, some sort of uh, Silicon Valley type entrepreneur buy, ha- buying into a, a very important AIDS pill and increasing the price from $13 to $750 a pill. There's been a huge backlash. He's, he's backed down and, and dropped it to $1,100 a bottle. Um, hackers have now released this guy's name and Um, personal address and phone number and everything and uh, the fight is on and over this debate about what really is a fair return for some of these medicines and that's uh, been an ongoing issue around the world and something that this particular example is uh, piquing people's interest uh, as to the future of what life could be under a tpp that is uh, from all accounts very beneficial for big pharma
1: Well, I think um, certainly the arguments that Big Pharma put out is this, before they can get their product onto the market, it has to go through a whole regulatory process, which includes clinical trials, et cetera. Now, when we recognize that a patent has a lifespan of 20 years with a potential for an extension of about five, because it's a pharmaceutical, usually what happens is about half of that period of time is taken up in clinical trials, from the time they actually lodge their application to say, yes, we've got this wonderful whiz-bang drug that, that, and getting a patent for it, to 12 years down the track, they haven't got on the market yet. And so their argument is, we need to be able to recoup our uh, expenditure, our investment, et cetera, in that shorter space of time, and that's why they jack up the price. But the question is, are they jacking up the price in real, to, to a, a reasonable level, or are they going beyond what they should, should be doing?
0: Yes, well, uh, that's a, a very good point. And listeners, that's something I didn't know, that patents in, in pharmaceuticals are limited to 20 years with just a five-year rollover. That's quite a lot different to what happens in uh, music and film where uh, Mickey Mouse, for example, had a 75-year licensing and I think they've, they've pushed that out another 50 years, something like that. But uh, uh, that, in a way, does make some sense on, on the side of big pharma, so I can understand that. Uh, is there any pressure from uh, industry to extend that patenting life to um, help deliver a better return for them? Uh, I'm just trying to see, as you just saw in my uh, presentation, I'm interested in the frontiers of monopoly. And so I wonder if there's pushback when pharma sees what the film and television rights have uh, and so forth.
1: Well, I've got to admit that the pharmaceutical industry has always been accused of this thing called evergreening. Okay, now evergreening is where they've had their basic patent for the initial invention and then they try to get a patent for a variation to that particular chemical. So it might be an improved process of, of, of manufacturing, could be improved process of delivery into the body, um, it could be uh, a, a change in the efficacy of the actual chemical, but it's basically the same invention. Um, and they get a patent for those successive changes and so they're constantly pushing out the protection period. But that doesn't mean that the original patent is still valid. I mean, it, once it's hit its, its end, then that version is available for generic companies to then start making.
0: You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and that was Professor Natalie Stoyanov from University of Technology, Sydney. We're now going to segue over to Anne Polina, who was a, a former counselor at, in Broome. She's the managing director of the indigenous not for profit Majula. She's been on all sorts of uh, uh, wilderness society type uh, documentaries and my stories and those sort of things. So she's uh, a real powerhouse and really. Blew away the conference, so um, yeah, let's go to uh, this interview, which segues rather nicely with what we were just discussing. We have just seen a, one of uh, the most passionate speeches at the conference for global eco taxes by Dr. Anne Polina, the managing director of Modula Incorporated, from the Fitzroy River area in the Kimberleys. So. Uh, And great to have you on the show, and you were talking there a lot about geoparks. Now, that's a concept I haven't heard of before. Fill us in.
2: Yeah, no, geoparks are a world phenomenon. They were um, started back in about 11 years ago. I think Nelson Mandela had the first one in South Africa about 10 years ago, and last year there was the Global Geopark Conference in Sydney, so Australians got to see firsthand what the potential for some of our natural capital and our beautiful natural assets could be.
0: One of my favourite lines that I tweeted in your speech was that Indigenous people occupy 25% of the planet's landmass, but we uh, uh, oversee 75% of the cultural resources. Is that what you're sort of talking about in terms of a geopark, is uh, that, that relationship between the land and the culture?
2: Yeah, I think this is a real opportunity to look at earth science in terms of geological structure and the formation of country, and how do we overlay that with the indigenous cultural values and indigenous cultural knowledge.
0: And so, you were talking in the Pilbara region about the incredible dinosaur tracks and so forth that are still being uncovered to this day. So, it really is such an old country. How do you feel as the world's oldest known culture? and uh, having all of these reference points, if you like, uh, under threat by uh, the, the big push for uh, easy profits via mining.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things is um, we're talking about the Kimberley and what we're talking about is a dinosaur trackway that's over a couple of hundred kilometres in length. One of the other things is that it's possibly the most extensive dinosaur trackway in the world and it, it does hold the largest dinosaur footprint in the world. So these are natural assets that... Um, are very encouraging in terms of people around the world are very interested in these sorts of assets and as I said we see ourselves as world citizens and so one of the things I also stated that these assets belong to the world so in terms of intergenerational equity we have a duty of care to be able to preserve and protect them and to be able to showcase their amazing value to the world.
0: That's right and so the the sort of covenant or or what sort of process would be used to protect that and you mentioned how native title really uh, is a low form of land title Uh, it's being the aboriginal heritage act is being undermined in western australia just as it was here in uh, victoria soon after we had the the stolen wealth games a lot of the indigenous uh, cultural officers who'd go out and reference what was happening on the land and protect sacred sites that might be in the way of my mining paths. I know from my friend uh, Rose Mavadiris Barker that the same thing is happening around Broome as well where a lot of the funding of Indigenous cultural offices has been cut out. So those first lines of protection are being worked away at and what other sides to that story do you see happening that really undermined your sovereignty and ability to, to uh, relay these stories to the wider people?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very important point is that what we're talking about, what I'm talking about is not just the sovereignty for Aboriginal people, but the sovereignty of our nation for all Australians. And so it's really critical to understand that one of the first things when these big projects come on board is that Indigenous people are at, to some extent, a bit of a wedge in terms of how these things play out. But yes, you're right, um, Western Australia, Aboriginal people are very much under attack. That We see the closure of Aboriginal communities the, um, you know, getting rid of the WA Heritage Act and from my perspective that seems to be another way to just get Aboriginal people off the land to open it up to mining, exploration and exploitation. So I think one of the things is to really be able to communicate what these values are, to be able to showcase them to fellow Australians and indeed the world, and I think that's one of the issues, is how do we communicate the value of these places? And one of the things I talked about was a little film that we made, Places That We Love, and I think as Australians we are standing up for the nation and that we need to be able to show that at the moment the environment is very much under attack and obviously Aboriginal people as defenders of the environment also come under those sorts of... um, scrutiny and uh, diminishing of rights. So I think one of the things that we'd like to say is that we need to recognise that the earth does have rights and that we as custodians of the land need to work with fellow Australians to be able to protect and enshrine those rights.
0: Well, now we're talking. I love uh, that term of stewardship or custodianship, and I often uh, ha- query the term traditional owners. Uh, do you, what do you feel more comfortable with, traditional owners or traditional custodians? And how does that terminology uh, reflect sort of a, a white um, invasion of Aboriginal values?
2: Yeah, now that's a very good question, and I think one of the things I make it very clear is that. I see myself as a traditional custodian not a traditional owner. When you bring that word in owner it commodifies the land and the environment and what I'm saying is that I don't own the land, the land owns me.
0: And I love that uh, line uh, that the law is in the land and uh, for us here as renegade economists we use very white man sort of analytical frameworks to quantify the value of the land and ensure that it's allocated. Uh, according to its best and highest use. Uh, That delivers gains for all of society but I suppose in a way the way indigenous uh, tribes would spend a month or a season per watering hole and keep moving was a way to ensure that that land regenerated and and gave a bounty to everyone. Uh, It's it's a little different in this day and age but uh, that law of the land is such an important one and it's just so frustrating when uh, land is almost seen as too difficult to get our heads around and it's something we can't really approach because uh, it's beyond us.
2: You know I think that's a very important point and I do say yes the law is in the land and when I talk about the land I'm talking about the environment and nature and when we look around the globe and even in Australia what we see is that man has put himself above nature and so therefore we're in a total conflict paradigm with that. And I think there's, we really need to sit down and understand that as traditional custodians, what we're saying is that we have a duty of care and also the, um, the human rights in terms of understanding that we are there to be custodians, not just for people, but for non-human beings as well.
0: Oh, now that's a good one. And it uh, links into the next point because I've interviewed at this conference Professor Natalie Stoyanov, who's very interested in uh, indigenous knowledge and uh, uh, in a way the patenting of nature and what's happening and you mentioned in your presentation something that I'd never heard of before and it was a plant from your area. I'm not sure if you want to reveal the name but it had uh, properties that were 40 times more powerful than morphine. Now surely there must have been some pretty big uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, knocking on your door uh, trying to make money out of that sort of uh, scenario.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we're talking about is benefit sharing and that we as Indigenous people have a traditional knowledge system that goes back thousands of years. It's not just knowledge production, but it's knowledge use and knowledge adaptation. And so this plant that I'm talking about is can be seen in terms of the concept around bioprospecting And what I'm saying is that there are real opportunities for Indigenous people to do business, but we also need to be very, very careful in terms of patents and the patent laws. And I think there may be potential ways, if we sit down, as I said earlier, we need to have collective wisdom and we need to bring all the different people to the table so that when we look at these assets, we can look at not just the benefit to um, us as Indigenous people, but to the world. And so there are real opportunities, but I think we need to slow down and be very cautious about how we proceed, Because one of the things is we want to be very careful about who controls the patents and how that plays out in the real world. And I think there's real opportunities to create a win-win in terms of bioprospecting and opportunities, not just for us as Indigenous people, but in terms of the well-being of human society and the species in general.
0: Well, as we uh, wrap up, I love this line of yours. I'm not an activist, but an actionist. Can you give us uh, the latest information on what's happening with James Price Point? It seemed like a fantastic victory. Last year, it might have been that the uh, huge uh, gas plant there that was as big as the Melbourne CBD was, was halted. Uh, but uh, I I'd always think that the mining companies will come with a plan B. And so uh, what is going on up there in Broome?
2: No, it was quite fortunate. I think one of the things, um, as I say, said a little earlier in my presentation, is that if these big development projects are coming on board, we really need to understand and get all of the industry knowledge and all of the science. And I think one of the things that James Price pointed was that it really encouraged citizen science. People came from all over the world when they understood that you know, this lands, cultural landscape was under attack and they were prepared to spend a considerable amount of time mapping and understanding what those multiple values were on the land so i think that's a really important point is that people understood that these values are there and they need to be protected for the long term i think one of the things that's come about because at the end of the day this is about maximizing profits for these big transnational companies and from the community perspective we think that this is a real win-win in terms of shell has been able to develop the world's first floating LNG hub. So it's a bit of a win in terms of they're still able to extract the gas from the Rouse Basin um, and yet the, the cultural landscape and the environmental values have remained intact and we're now working quite seriously in terms of how do we get those values preserved for current and future generations of the world and I think this is a case of a win-win and like you said I mean none of these cases are over and I think um, Western Australia is a really ca- a good case in point. I think one of the things is we need to understand that planning reform has really been able to undermine the, the responsibility and the rights of local government and I think planning reform is something that we need to keep an eye on because what it does is takes the control from the local people into the state and I think those sorts of conversations really need to be rehad, and that's why I'm a very strong advocate for bioregional planning that we in the region need to be able to sit down together all of the stakeholders and understand what the impacts of these projects are going to be and what the benefits are. But um, at the moment we seem to have a win-win scenario with James Price Point and um, all of these things run in political cycles and for our Premier I think he's been able to uh, negotiate a, a, a movement in terms of where the water uh, lines lie in terms of whether the, the royalties were going to the federal government or to the state. And I think about three or four months ago there was a recognition that some of that uh, those waters would allow the West Australian Government to be able to still collect a royalty in terms of the gas that's being extracted from the Browse Basin. So at the moment we've got a win-win, but um, you never know. You've just got to keep these things on the boiler and be ever diligent.
0: Now in terms of their diligence, uh, we can't forget what's happening in your very backyard on the Matawara River, the Fitzroy River. And uh, unfortunately there's a clash here of civilisation, a clash of uh, various... Uh, planning law.
2: Well, I think one of the things that's um, happening on the Fitzroy River is this conversation in the Kimberley that's happening at the moment with the Canning Super Basin. What we're talking about is an area which is 550,000 square kilometres of basin and one of the things we need to be quite clear about is that at the moment Aboriginal people are being forced into very quick negotiations without the opportunity to be able to get all of the all of the science, all of the industry knowledge and so what we're saying is that let's have a bit of a pause and seeing how these sorts of things impact on us and how can we get the resources to be able to show that these can have a um, whatever the impact may be but it will be a ripple impact that will impact on everyone. At the moment we don't know the story in regards to the connectivity of these uh, groundwater systems, particularly the Fitzroy River to the Canning Basin and I think before we start rushing in with these big development projects that we're seeing over here on the East Coast in terms of the impact on human health and environmental well-being, we really need to sit down do the science, become informed about industry knowledge and better understand do we really need these sorts of developments in our regions.
0: So just to summarise that, when you talk about a basin, are you talking about uh, fracking or is it gas extraction? What is it?
2: Yeah, no, we're talking about unconventional gas. We're talking about shale gas, and that's a little bit different to the coal seam gas. Coal seam gas goes down about 500 metres. Shale gas um, exploration and exploitation goes down about three to five kilometres. So it's going down, down, down into the big deep aquifers. And at this point in time... um, no one seems to be really understanding what the impact of that exploration and development is on the land and the water
0: and there we have that's ann polina ann polina from the kimberley region check out earthsharing.org.au for the show notes earthsharing.org.au as we take another step towards an earth rights democracy here on the beloved airwaves of 3cr
1: Is something worrying you? Need someone to talk to? Having trouble at work or at home? Call WIRE Women's Information on 1300 134 130, Monday to Friday 9am to 5pm. Talk to a woman who cares. It's free and confidential Victoria-wide. You can talk to us about anything. You can also talk to us in your own language through our telephone interpreter service. So call WIRE on
2: 1300 134 130 or visit wire.org.au. WIRE is a 3CR supporter.
0: The new international bookshop, Melbourne's famous left-wing bookshop, we stock the widest range of left-wing literature and merchandise, as well as heaps of cheap quality second-hand books. Visit NIBS at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, or online at www.newinternational.com.